the key is to humanize, mm -hmm. to literally help others who look like me, who have the same kind of privilege that I do, to recognize that there's a system here quietly dehumanizing a good portion, 25% pushing 30% of the community that you live in is being dehumanized because their sins are public record in a way that renders them feeling as if they are lesser than the rest mm. of us. Welcome to In the Room with Communitas North America. It's a time when we invite you to enter our world for a brief conversation and hear more about what we are passionate about as a missional and microchurch network. We also hope that these conversations will inspire you to think about new ways of being the church in North America. I am Leon Longard, the team lead for Communitas North America. My co-host in these conversations is James Cola. So grab yourself a favorite beverage, have a seat, and join us around the table. Hey everybody, uh, welcome to In the Room with Communitas North America. I'm Leon Longard, we have James Cola here with me, and um, like we do every other Tuesday night, inviting one of our team members or a couple of our team members with Communitas in North America to just kind of sit down, talk, kind of just enter our space for a little bit and um, welcome you to join us. Um, if uh, you're watching live or even if you're not watching live, you know, throw in a question in the comments. If it's after the broadcast, we can always try to reply back another way. But uh, James is going to introduce our guest today. Yeah. Hey, guys. We have Jody with us today. Jody's a part of Communitas, and Jody's doing some really cool work around criminal justice reform. And are you outside of Portland or in Portland? We're right 25 now. miles southwest of Portland. Okay. Awesome. Oregon. Would you mind uh, just giving us a little picture of like your story and what you're up to? Yeah. So um, when you ask somebody who's pushing 60 to tell their story, it could go on and on and on. <laughs> um, but I'll just give you the highlights. Uh, I am originally from Southern California. I um, came from a pretty dysfunctional family system as a lot of people do. And when I was 17, I saw a um, article in the LA Times that the Crystal Cathedral had just been built, if you guys have ever heard of that. Mm -hmm. um, a big giant glass church in SoCal in Orange County. And so I went over there because it looked like a cool building. And when I was um, taking a tour, they actually had an evening service on Sunday night. And I wandered into the evening service and I heard uh, Robert Schuler preaching from the book of Philippians and everything changed in the text of Jesus giving up everything that it meant to be God to come and live as we did this overwhelming sense of um, love and acceptance, um, things I didn't get a lot of at home, uh, changed my life forever. And so that was 17. Um, went to Biola University, got a nursing degree, met my spouse. Uh, we have always been nice white church people. That's kind of my handle on TikTok and Instagram is nice white church lady. Um, raised our kids in the evangelical context, very traditional mainstreamish context, um, our life with Christ. And then in my mid forties, right before the 08 great recession, my career blew up. My marriage was in shambles. My first kid went off to college and I was all of a sudden stripped of all the things that I had invested my identity in and um, did the most reasonable thing that a middle-aged woman who's losing everything could do. And I went to seminary. And uh, <laughs> and while I was, of course, makes all the sense in the world. Um, and so while I, my very first semester in one of my first classes, 
a woman in her 70s came in with five women who had done time. The woman's, uh, her name was Fran Howard. And she came in and shared a bit about her story and going to prison and just playing softball. She'd been an athletic director at Willamette University and brought these women in and they shared their stories. And I had another very profound supernatural moment in my journey with Christ where the Lord was saying, uh, go there. And I was like, prison, I don't, I don't know anything about prison. I've never been to a prison. I so I met with Fran a month later. And then in January of 2010, went to prison for the first time. And, um, and that changed everything. Um, got involved in teaching, uh, counseling, pastoral counseling, a whole bunch of stuff inside the prison in a women's prison ended up becoming a community chaplain for the Oregon Department of Corrections, uh, helping people to re-enter community, um, specifically for my county, Yamhill County, which is the um, the location of the fabulous Oregon wine country, if anyone. It's like, where is that in Oregon? Where all the good wine comes from. And so um, became a community chaplain in my community, started working with people in my church context, uh, doing reentry work. So doing work on the inside, doing reentry work, eventually was asked to serve uh, as the chairperson for the Religious Services Advisory Council, which is an interfaith group um, that advises the Department of Corrections to ensure that everyone has the ability to exercise their constitutional right to practice the religion of their choice while they're incarcerated. And from there, started going deep on this thing called mass incarceration, the phenomenon that is something that only the U.S. Um, has. And um, we have 5% uh, of the world's population, but 25% of everyone imprisoned on this planet is imprisoned here in the land of the free and the home of the brave. Um, started digging in, reading, studying, seeing the intersection between what it means to love your neighbor as yourself and being called into loving um, neighbors who have been labeled as the most horrific humans that are irredeemable and speaking the good news of Jesus to people who really believe that the nature of what they have done in their lives and the nature of what's been done to them uh, has rendered them unfit to be followers of Christ. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's, you know, when we first talked about having you come on this program, you brought that up, the work you're doing with criminal justice. And I was very interested in that, having worked with people experiencing homelessness, end up with a lot of people with records um, that um, really do create barriers for people. So maybe tell us a little bit about, you know, how you became, I mean, we've gotten a bit of it, but if you want to go any deeper on it, how you became, you know, passionate about cr criminal justice reform. And so if you're familiar with the Enneagram, I'm an eight, which is a challenger. Mm -hmm. And from a very, very early age, uh, deeply embedded in my soul is um, a very strong sense of justice and uh, an inability to be afraid of fighting for justice. <laughs> um, as an aid in being a challenger, you don't back down from a fight. Um, and this is a big, hoary, hairy, complicated mess that is rooted in racism. That's, you know, the war on drugs, the, the, the architects of the war on drugs now in their late age and their life have come out. And so we knew it wasn't about the drugs. We knew that it was about um, creating systems to control people that didn't look or believe like us. Um, that actually goes way back to the emancipation or to the, the uh, 13th amendment and our 14th amendment, I forget which amendment it is. Anyway, when we, when we outlawed slavery, we left this little piece in there that said, except as a punishment for crime, that forced labor mm -hmm. be imposed as a punishment for crime. And then throughout the South where slaves had been freed, 
um, all of a sudden it became a crime to to chew gum and throw it on the ground. It, I mean, crimes got crazy sauce then. Um, and we've done that as a society uh, since 1971 when Nixon declared war on drugs. We've taken things that historically were not crimes and we've just criminalized more and more and more and more um, as a way to control people that white privileged establishment wanted to control. Um, and so now we've got this mess called mass incarceration. It's incredibly expensive. It's obliterating communities. Um, all communities are impacted. People don't realize that um, even corrections officers have a much lower life expectancy. And there's some great studies that have come out in the last two years to show that mass incarceration and everybody that touches it from the people we incarcerate to the people their families to the people that work in that system, it's actually decreased the life expectancy in the U.S. by four years. Mm. Um, wow. Yeah, and 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 nobody connects those dots. And in the church, you know, we have we have our issues of justice. We know we're supposed to fight poverty. We know we're supposed to, as you you know, say house those who have no homes and close those who have no um, have no clothing and feed those who have no, have you know the hungry and and but what we don't realize is that mass incarceration in our criminal justice system intersects with every justice issue that's in the purview of the people of God in this country and yet nobody realizes that there's this ugly churning machine that is contributing to all of these things that we're trying to fight um, and. And, and then we turn around and we vote on an initiative or we elect a DA or we do something that actually is perpetuating the system that is creating the problems that we're trying to fight. Mm -hmm. So how can I not be passionate about that? I can't think of a reason why you wouldn't be. And I, and I agree with you on all, all of that um, and how it affects everything. Leon, you posed a question while we were prepping for this about um, the work that Jody's doing and the good news. Do you mind? I just feel like it would be an appropriate time to pose that one. Yeah, yeah, we can do that. We can jump jump to there. Uh, but yeah, um, because we talk about, you know, doing incarnational ministry, being, um, you know, in communitas, we use these six dynamics and we start out with a, embedding in the community initiating a you know an intentional gospel sowing presence and you know um how do you see that um how do you see that your work with with justice reform being linked to the embodiment of the good news or the gospel um in the community mm -hmm. i think I think there's a couple questions that we have to ask ourselves when we look at embodying the good news, or um, I tend to lean more toward using the term shalom. Mm -hmm. um, yes. You know, which, which most of us in Christian circles have heard, oh, shalom means peace. Um, but it actually means wholeness and goodness and everything working together and everybody being okay. And I'm fond of saying that shalom isn't shalom unless it's shalom for everybody. Yeah. Amen. Isn't. And, and good news isn't good news unless it's good news for everybody. Mm -hmm. So when we look at embodying faith, I mean, first and foremost, I was already embedded in this community. Um, deeply embedded in this community, embedded in a particular echelon of this community. My husband is an attorney. Um, I was a professional. We live in a, in a wonderful house. We drink great wine. We have lovely restaurants. And it's hard for me to go to my local Fred Meyer and not see people that I know. But when I started looking at people that we have more or less rendered invisible, in our community, because um, it's really easy to to see the visibility of folks that are living in tents on the side of the road. Can't mm -hmm. okay, um, because the news is so prolific in stories of child welfare and foster kids and whatnot. You know that those things are visible, 
But when we look at the fact that one in four, we're now pushing one in three people in this country has a criminal record. Mm. And in certain communities of color, that's much higher. Um, when we look at that and we look at how that criminal record and this system bars people from living into um, the goodness of being created in the Imago Dei, <laughs> being um, redeemed by the work of Jesus Christ. When we look at how the justice system and criminal records have rendered people invisible and they want to be invisible. They don't want you to know that they have a criminal record. None of us wants to be defined by the worst thing that we've ever done. Mm -hmm. Okay. And yet when folks go to get a job, when they go to get an apartment, um, <laughs> some folks can't go to church. Uh, mm -hmm. I remember one time walking into church, um, and I was with someone and the nice greeter said, how do you know Jody? That's like, no. He was like, no. Yeah. And I said, oh, we met through some friends. Oh, great. And this person immediately said, would you like to volunteer in our children's ministry? We have a shortage of Sunday school teachers. Ooh. And this was somebody who couldn't be in a church without having a chaperone. Mm -hmm. not allowed to be where children congregate and whatnot. So when we look at sharing the good news, really this work that we do um, in reform, and, and there's a whole lot of layers. There's working with legislators, which I do, and then there's the you know boots on the street and working with the people who are impacted by this system. The key is to humanize, mm -hmm. to literally help others who look like me, who have the same kind of privilege that I do, to recognize that there's a system here quietly dehumanizing a good portion, 25%, pushing 30% of the community that you live in is being dehumanized because their sins are public record in a way that renders them feeling as if they are lesser than the rest mm. of us. <clears throat> and we don't even know it. We, we don't even know yeah. that here. So what happens when you feel, I mean, I love, you know, Brene Brown, when you are embroiled in shame, when you feel like you don't belong, you're not accepted by community, you're not connected, you don't have um, a sense of uh connection to humanity then it makes it really easy to harm humanity and so in the era of mass incarceration most crime is repeat crime so mm -hmm. when you humanize someone and bring them into the fold of humanity unconditionally all of a sudden it's a lot harder to steal someone's car it's a lot harder to rip someone off it's a lot harder to um, sell drugs to a kid. It's a lot harder to do those things. Most of us don't realize, we, we think that we were conditioned by our family systems not to break the law. But ultimately, it is our sense of belonging that drives us not to break the law. Because if I break the law, I could hurt someone. If I run a red light, I could hurt someone. If I drive drunk, I can hurt someone. So when we talk about bringing the good news or shalom, creating spaces for shalom for everybody, it's really an endeavor of humanizing and relating, creating spaces of belonging. Um, I love to tell the story of a guy, um, Adam. Adam started um, using heroin and meth with his mom when he was 12. You know, drug addiction is a family cyclical yeah. thing. And when he got out the last time, which was um, fall of 18, and connected with us, he had never been sober for more than 30 days at any given time. Mm. And I have a friend who is a MAP provider. So she's a nurse practitioner that provides um, medication-assisted treatment for opioid mm -hmm. addiction. 
And so I connected him to Katie and Katie got him on um, Matt so that his sobriety started stringing out. And there was one day we were driving in my car and he said, um, and we'd been kind of cutting it up at that point, talking about prison fights and stuff, you know, mm -hmm. and he said, thank you and the volunteers for, you know, so much for doing this. Thank you so much for helping. Um, and I said, well, you know why we do this, right? And he literally got dumbfounded and looked at me and said, no, I don't. I, I really don't know. Why would a bunch of nice church people help a bunch of poor drug addicts? And I said, so you won't steal my car. And it was funny. And the other guys in the car laughed. And Adam said, no, 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 no. I would never steal your car. He says, I know you. And he goes, now, if you were some rando lady that I didn't know, and I'm jonesing for a heroin fix, I might steal her car, but I can't steal your car. I know you. Mm -hmm. So when we look at creating shalom for others and humanizing and creating spaces of belonging, we are saving ourselves, so to speak, from the harm that people who are ostracized can cause to the community. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, um, one of the things that I hear you saying in the midst of that is a lot of the like restoring work that we get to participate in, in creation, we accomplish through relationship, like loving my neighbor is a big piece of like healing the brokenness that exists in creation. Um, I just wanted to point that out as a theme. And what you it does, but at the same time, when you're dealing with, um, so we're dealing with a broken system and the people that get churned and burned through the system usually come to the system very broken. As, as, and we have to be careful uh, to define what we mean by healing. Mm -hmm. Because there are some wounds that just won't be healed this side of the sun. Yeah. I, I can't heal and undo the fact that your mother allowed you to be serially raped from the age of four to feed her drug habit, which then erupted in an act of violence where you got a hold of a gun and killed someone, one of mm -hmm. your users, yeah. when you were 14 years old. And this is somebody near and dear to my heart, by the way. And, and, and thus, you were then tried as an adult and sentenced to 25 to life and mm -hmm. raised in a prison. Mm -hmm. And then through the efforts of some fabulous people living out shalom with their gifting, um, law students and the justice reform clinic and whatnot at a local university, a local law school, they get the governor to commute your sentence and then you're just sent out into the world. I can't heal that kind yeah. of, of wound. I can't, yeah. I can't heal a system that did that to you. But what I can do, and I did, was I can lobby for change in that system. Because nice white church ladies like me in late middle age, you know, pushing seniorhood. Yeah. We know how to go in and talk to a legislator. We know how to write a bill. We know how to advocate for change in the system. We know how to pass a bill, uh, which we did in 2019. That means that youth won't be tried as adults here. You look at somebody like um, Brian Stevenson, if you haven't read uh, Just Mercy, you know, or seen the movie and seen the movie too, but the, the book is incredible and Brian's work in Montgomery, Alabama, you know, how a black man went right in to 
the belly of the beast and used his gifts to argue before the Supreme Court that life without was something that shouldn't happen to youth. Now we have a Supreme Court right now who thinks that might actually be okay. But I can't undo and I can't heal the hurt. But what I can do is show up and fight with the gifts that God has given to me. Um, and it's in the struggle that that shalom happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not going to see those wounds healed until we get. Yeah. To, yeah. We're just not. Mm-hmm. And so part of doing this work means being present when people do stupid stuff, when they commit another crime and loving them and humanizing them despite that. Mm-hmm. And they lie to you about the fact that they're relapsing when they shut down and simply don't have the ability to attach and love other people. This is where I think the church has been in its efforts. And I, I just saw this recently, uh, a faith-based organization that wanted to help um, previously incarcerated parents get their kids back in the the child welfare system. They tried to engage there, but the church folks were just so put off by the fact that these people didn't trust them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why, why do you think somehow you are deserving of trust for somebody whose entire life has been characterized by exploitation and wounding? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I would say let's let's be careful how we define heal in this space. Yeah, absolutely. We need to be like mindful of what, like our language. I think to be like more specific, one of as I hear you talking, one of the like needs I see you meeting that personally seems so profound is like a relational division. Like, oh, I just can't imagine waking up tomorrow and not having people that I could confide in, that I could count on, that are going to show up for me. And so that's like one of the ways that I really see you bringing healing through the like work that you're doing, like fixing something that's broken yeah. in creation. Um, I'm sure we could like build that list out with. <laughs> yeah, and and knowing um, knowing what your gifting and your capacity is. I mean, truly doing some self reflection and knowing who you are before you enter spaces that you maybe don't understand, um, and knowing what you bring to that space and that brokenness. Because the only thing you might bring to that space, and, and I've, I've had a lot of church folk come to me over the years and say, oh, you know, how can I help? How can I volunteer? And I'm like, okay, wait, you're a mom with three kids at home. This is not a population you pop in and out of and, and you know, oh, sorry, I have to ca- cancel our coffee date or whatever. This is a population that needs relentless consistency. And you're not in a space and time where you can offer that right now. And other people simply, they'll ask me questions about, you know, aren't you afraid to be around sex offenders? (laughs) Well, no. Mm -hmm. We can have a long conversation about what's defined as a sex offender in our culture. And, you know, there's a whole world there. But knowing really who you are and what you have to offer. And I would say that one of the biggest things that that the faith community has to offer is um, dig in, become aware of what's really going on here and learn to vote informed on these issues because there's a movement right now to undo the harsh punitive policies that were put in place in the 80s and the 90s and there's a counter movement led by a bunch of nice white church folk <laughs> saying, but 
but sex offenders are going to rape my children. No, actually, they're not. Someone in your family is most likely going to be the person that molests or harms your child. Mm -hmm. um, registered sex offenders, when you really start to understand what's going on there, um, are are more likely to steal your car because they have no means of making a living or having a life and they need that car to live in. Mm -hmm. Becoming more informed about the complexities of what the criminal justice system is um, and how it operates so that we can start to dismantle some of the things that, that we, you know, the evangelical community was big in creating punitive um, no tolerance laws in the eighties and the nineties. And where the hell do we get off using terms like no tolerance? Mm. I mean, do we really believe that Jesus can redeem anything and anyone? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very critical. Um, and I've seen that. Or, no, you're good, Leon. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna say I've seen that, you know, with one individual that we used to I knew through doing outreach to camps and he's now housed. Um he was on the registry. Um and he was overly cautious about being around any children himself because he's like, I don't wanna, you know. I don't want to uh, do anything. I, I don't want anybody to say anything that'll get me back to prison, even when I've done nothing, right. you know, type of a thing. And I'm like, right. yeah, I mean, I tend to think some of those people are some of the people that are have experienced the prison system and got wrapped into that, that um, system of, you know, being on the registry. They are so not wanting to get back into that. I mean, they were victimized again in the prisons. The last place you want to go is back where you were victimized. Right. And I think, and I think right. we need to, people need to understand that that's part of the challenge yeah. that the people face. Yeah. And how do we humanize people? Likely, that folks most like, likely to reoffend are drug offenders because yeah. addiction is a powerful force. Mm -hmm. Powerful, powerful force. And and when you talk to folks, you know, since we're talking about sex offenders in the registry and whatnot, um, true story. Um, my husband is a child welfare attorney, and he had a case with a kid who had been in foster care with the family for a long, long time. And uh, she was on the verge of being adopted. And then their 18-year-old son, well, <coughs> sorry, my allergies are really bad this year. Yeah. Their 17-year-old um, son had a 15, almost 16-year-old girlfriend, and then he turned 18. And a school counselor who somehow knew that these kids were having sex, now that he's 18, the school counselor is a mandatory reporter. Oh. Okay passed a report that an 18 year old's having sex with a 15 year old, soon to be 16 year old. And so this kid then was picked up and is looking at six years in prison. Mm. Senior in high school on his way to college. And, and how we, how, how this came into our purview was um, it was going to screw up the adoption of this foster child into this family because now there is somebody who's facing being on the sex offender registry in this family. Mm -hmm. We have a registry full of those stories. Yeah. We have a registry full of guys who um, need to get smacked down, no doubt, who grab somebody's butt in a bar, call the cops. That's sex abuse for or sex harassment, depending on your state. Mm -hmm. misdemeanor but now you're on the registry this is a true story guy did five months in jail for this major problem with alcoholism um five months in jail got out and could not move home to his wife and his children mm. 
So now we've just harmed that family because he can't live at home. He's got to have a different residence. Luckily, this guy, <coughs> he did have um, gainful employment, but a lot of these folks don't. Right. Who, who exactly are we punishing and what are we trying to accomplish? Mm -hmm. Now, we also have to really look at how um, the church's ideas and the faith community's ideas about the value of men versus women. When we use language around marriage, uh, related to, you know, a woman needing to uh, uh, satisfy, please, however you want to roll yeah. her husband. When we use language around men can't help themselves, when we look the other way around issues of internet porn, misogyny, just the hierarchical ideas that we have in our church settings, we're contributing to the misogyny that leads to, I'm going to call them minor sex crimes that then leads to obliterating these people's lives. That's very, very different than about the 1% of people on the sex offender registry who truly have harmed and perpetrated against someone, let's say children, okay? Um, and I will tell you this, I have never met a man who sexually harmed a child who was not sexually harmed as a child. So rethinking our ideas around once a victim becomes a perpetrator, they've lost their victim card and they've lost their humanity card and they've lost our will to heal them. Because if you really want to stop these cyclical crimes, including drug addiction, you're going to have to take a posture of healing and kill the fear-based punitive ideas that we, the church said we're the right way to move forward in criminal justice when we develop the system that we have right now in the 80s and the 90s. Mm. Yeah. James' eyes are turning. I'm just <laughs> sitting. <laughs> sitting with the, I was not designed to host. I think like this, <laughs> like, ooh, let me like quietly mold that over. <laughs> contemplative introvert here so um there's a there's a great book i'll i'll put a couple plugs in here so a lot of people have heard of the book um the new jim crow by michelle alexander it was yeah. written in 2010 and it really just rips the ugly covers off of the racialization of our criminal justice system. And you can read it, but it's written by a law professor and it's heady and it's you really got to chomp and chew on it. It's a great book. But if you'd like an easier take on the new Jim Crow from a faith-based perspective, read um, Rethinking Incarceration by um, Dominique Gilliard. Um, it, it's basically... Um, Somebody who knows their theology. He's a he's a, a black pastor in the Covenant Church in uh, Chicago, I think it is. And um, but he does lots and lots of footnoting and referencing the New Jim Crow, so you kind of get that too. It's a good twofer. But one of the things that he challenges us as the people of God to think about is our theology of penal substitutionary atonement. <laughs> that if we think as sinners, somebody's got to pay. Right. Lucky for us, Jesus hung on the cross and paid for our sins. That feeds into the way that we deal with wayward citizens. Somebody's got to pay. When we use the mm -hmm. term accountability, what we usually mean is punishment. And punishment in my mind is just a hair's breadth away from state-sanctioned revenge. Yeah. And so are we the people of revenge? As long yeah. as it's state-sanctioned revenge makes it mm -hmm. okay? Or are we the people that 
do really hard work of restoration. I mean, mm -hmm. isn't that the meta narrative of our scripture? Yeah. Starting from Genesis 12 and the Abrahamic call, you're going to be a blessing to walking through <laughs> the prophets saying this was never about empire building. It's about restoration and you being a blessing to the ugly spaces mm -hmm. in your community to Jesus coming along and saying, blessed are the poor. Yeah. You think the poor are cursed, but I'm going to tell you they're blessed. You think those who mourn who have really hard lives and situations are cursed. Well, maybe you could show up and be a blessing. Yeah. It's kind of your job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very true. Uh, one of the things that I am being helped to think and feel a lot in this conversation is just that when we recognize and value people's humanity, it should inform, probably will inform how we treat and act towards them. And we need a shift from a punitive posture to a restorative, like so desperately. We're just talking about like what's best for everyone. A restorative approach is what's best mm -hmm. for everyone. But I just think it is, we just need to practice like feeling the pain of people who who arrive at a place of like committing crime, whatever it be. Um, and just like understanding that they are people like we are. And similarly to how circumstances lead us to act outside of like the ways that we believe we should act, circumstances have led those people that act outside of the way they mm -hmm. should act. So I just am so much feeling like, oh, I, I hurt as I hear you talk about people that you know and have relationship with <clears throat> and what they've been through. And I'm sure the pain of like, I'm sure they feel pain regarding the choices they've made. Yeah, try, try mm -hmm. talking to a mom who's doing eight years for manslaughter because she got drunk, crashed her car and killed her own kid. Mm -hmm. I've never met now, now granted, I mean, we love the true crime stories or whatever, you know, we, we love holding up those horrific, heinous crimes and, you know, silence of the lamb movies and all that stuff on, you know, there's just evil people out there that will, <laughs> that will, um, that will never change and they'll harm you and they've done horrific things and they can't wait to get their next fix of serial killing or whatever that mm -hmm. is. Okay? They do exist. And incarceration is probably the cleanest, most efficient way to keep society safe from people whose compulsions are so dangerous. But even within the prison system, you can treat people with humanity and keep communities safe. Mm -hmm. Having said that, the vast majority of people that we incarcerate are not a danger to anyone. They're mostly a danger to themselves. Mm -hmm. So what the hell are we doing? And 95% of everybody we lock up is coming back to community. And so we've taken, I mean, especially in the context of women, somebody who has been um, sexually and, and violently abused by her family system or by intimate partners or whatever, and addiction, you know, feeding addiction through identity theft. Identity theft's a big one for women. Women don't generally commit violence, but when they do, there's usually a good reason behind that. Mm -hmm. But then we incarcerate them. So we take these highly traumatized human beings and then we put them in a system of command and control and perpetually traumatize them, pretty much etching in stone the fact that they can't walk out the door and change. Because yeah. we've just 
perpetuated what it was that led to that crime in the first place rather than disrupting all of those factors. Men are the same way, but men won't, they won't report the violence. Um, you know, they, they won't, they, they won't talk about the impact of being beaten up by their, their fathers or their mothers or their uncles or being mm -hmm. especially being sexually violated. Um, so that's, the official statistics on men are a lot lower, but when you sit down and you get to know folks and you hear their stories, um, again, we've got to get our heads around when someone is victimized, why is it the minute that they step over the line to becoming a perpetrator, have they lost any compassion that we would have had for them had they not acted out in whatever way they acted out? Um, and then we've got we've got to deal with addiction. We are the most addicted society, and you know my background's in healthcare. Um, that was my career that that blew up, and um, I can't tell you how many doctors and nurses over my years, or even in my husband's profession and the legal profession. In, if you have an addiction and, and I, I look, you know, medicine more so, I mean, we put a doctor in rehab once that was treating patients while being severely impaired on opioids and alcohol. So work on the job, opioids and alcohol. And because he's a nice professional, he gets overseen by the medical board. He gets treatment, he gets diversion, he gets all these other things, but a poor black man who's, using or selling meth and isn't freaking going and doing surgery impaired. So the harm that he could potentially cause is so much less. And yet the hammer falls hard there. Why do we think about addiction so differently for those who are poor folks of color mm. as professionals? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, or go ahead, James. No, you go for it, Leon. No, no, no. I was, go ahead. Oh, I just know that we're coming up to the end of our time, but I, one of the things I really wanted to hear from you, Jody, is um, I was just like prepping for this and read that you were pastoring a faith community a little bit. And would you mind sharing with us about that? Yeah. So in this work, um, pastoring is a very fluid thing and you listen to the spirit and you experiment a lot. And one of the things that I saw, my husband is, you know, my partner every step of the way in this work and, and a, and a group of us who've been doing this work fairly organically in our community for a long time, um, was kind of going back to sex offenders. A lot of people who have committed sex crimes, um, everything from, you know, slapping somebody on the butt in a bar to, to, to harming a child, um, they feel incredible shame around that. And Jesus is the bearer of, of our shame. <laughs> um, and so you get into prison and church on the inside is, I mean, uh, you go to the dark places and the spirit is just profoundly active. And so a lot of folks will come to a faith and an understanding of um, the redemptive work of Christ in prison. So these folks go to prison and they have church on the inside and then they get out and they desperately want community, but because of the nature of their charges, what we do is we isolate them. And so we were kind of looking at what would it look like if we launched an over 18 fellowship. So kids, aren't there and everybody's safe and opened it up to people who um who weren't registered because 
you nailed it, Leanne, on the inside, there's a pecking order of what kind of crime you have committed. And if you're registered, the the joke, the, the joke, it's not a good joke. Um, but the saying on the inside is all those guys are baby rapists. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. No, dude, you know, not the case at all. But again, when you're feeling shame for your own crimes and the fact that you're in prison, what better way to get out of that than to malign somebody else? We do it in the church all the time too. You mm -hmm. know, yeah. we decide which sins are okay and which aren't and blah, blah, blah. So um, we decided what would it look like to launch a service. So we partnered with a local church and we created a service on Monday nights and uh, guys and a lot of volunteers and we all showed up and we had a meal. Um, it was really beautiful. The woman, I mean, we thought, well, we could potluck it or whatever, but there was a young woman in this congregation who says, I think the Lord the Lord is prompting me to come and feed these men and my husband and I have means. So I'm just going to make dinner for everybody every Monday night. And when I sat down and heard her story of being in foster care, being perpetrated against as a child, mm. she said, this is my testimony to the healing work of Christ in my own life. Wow. That I can feed guys, some of which who have harmed children the way I was harmed as a child mm. and so she would cook dinner and we'd all get together and we'd hang around the table um and then the folks at the church that was giving us the building uh wanted everybody to go into the worship service and we're gonna have you know videos powerpoints or whatever and sing songs and preach and whatnot and so we mm -hmm. noticed that a lot of the guys after the time around the table um, they didn't want that. They'd had church on the inside that was small and interactive and raw and real. And to all of a sudden become part of a spectator sport mm -hmm. just wasn't for them. And so after a while, the church was like, well, you know, we're really not, we're not, um, what did they say? We're not developing worshipers. <laughs> so they didn't want to do it anymore. <laughs> we create as many spaces as we can around food and around the table, which is really funny because when we look at our modern worship type gatherings, that weren't the way of Jesus, the way of Jesus. <laughs> I get it. I get it. You know, and when when I was leading inside um, and COVID screwed that up, but when I was leading services inside, I would do some prep. I would, you know, maybe we'd be going through a book. The women would say, oh, I want to go through this book or that book or whatever. So, you know, having a seminary degree and all, I'd do some prep and whatnot. But you had to show up every week. And I always started each week with the same question. Where did you see God this week? Mm -hmm. And I'd listen to the answers. And I had a partner, um, a woman named Lish, who played guitar and led music. Live music means a lot to people on the inside. Yeah. And there would be times where we'd listen to the check-in. And then we'd look at each other and we both knew we're not doing what we prepped. Yes. We're not going there. It's just not what we're doing. So tonight we were going to be talking about, you know, I don't know, Acts 14 or whatever. But based on the check-in, everybody open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. <laughs> and, and just creating space to listen to the Spirit and listen to the way the Spirit speaks through broken people. And I mean, sometimes the check-in would be somebody just losing it saying, I don't know where God is this week. Mm. I got a call from the child welfare worker telling me that they've taken my five-year-old out of the foster care that she was in because one of the older children has harmed her. Mm. 
Well, at that point, all we're going to do is sit here and pray for kids tonight. Yeah. And acknowledge that God loves you and God loves your kids and that there is not a damn thing you can do that can separate you from the love of Christ. So when we talk about a service or church or whatnot, I think following Jesus into the neighborhood just means you've got to be fluid and you've got to let go of your own ideas of of what's supposed to happen and just start observing what is the spirit doing here? Because that time around the table was powerful stuff. And we were really irritated. And the mm -hmm. folks were like, yeah, we're not going to do this anymore because, you know, we're not developing worshipers. Mm -hmm. so. Wow. You know, it's really been great to kind of just hear all the aspects of what you've been doing there, Jody. And um, the passion you bring to it. I mean, obviously this is, you know, when we set this up, we were like, well, we'll just do a few questions and just let people speak with their passion. And you are definitely uh, doing that tonight. And I think it's, it's a good conversation that people need to, and we need to continually be revisiting and people need to hear. Um, and so um, I want to just say thank you. Thank you for the work you're doing. Um, thank you for connecting with Communitas because yeah. every once in a while I get to connect with you on a Zoom call and stuff I like know. that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been rough not to be together. And you know, I'll say this about Communitas. I think I think with you know the, the whole dynamic adventure and the principles that are there. Um that's a really nice framework for listening to the spirit in your context and being very fluid. Exactly. But it can also very quickly become methodology. Yeah. Yeah. If we're not so, yeah. And so I just, you know, I, I would say I love that Communitas looked at the work that we're doing in our community and said, Oh man, that's the gospel in action mm -hmm. versus how many people came to your service? Exactly. You know? I mean, I hate that. How many people? I'm like, who gives a shit? Okay. Like who? Because wherever two are gathered, I think that's the standard we've been given is two. Um, yeah. I, I love that communica Communitas leaves space for us to recognize and maybe listen to callings that aren't real traditional. Um, yeah. and pastoring is more about who you are than what you do. Exactly. How many people yeah. showed up to what you do. And so I love the community and I wish, I wish we could all be together more consistently. Yes. Yes. Um, but thank you for making space for this topic. Cause it's generally, it's not a topic that a lot of people want to dig into because I can't sit here and tell you stories all day of great redemption and how people's lives were changed and it was wonderful. And da -da. I mean, I, I, I have those stories. Mm -hmm. The reality is we have a system that makes it really hard to make that your personal narrative. I mean, once right. you've got that criminal record, every domino is lined up to ensure that you are barred from all of the spaces that can nurture you into your full humanity. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I think we as ministers of the gospel have to recognize that maybe I have to go into spaces mm -hmm. where the folks that God has called me to love in my neighborhood um, reside because they can't come into my space. Right. Right. Very good. And I think that's a great place to leave it to where it's to transition now, because I think that that's what we are. That's what we need to be about um, in Communitas. And so thank you again uh, for for the time and just all the heart you bring to what you're doing. And we will be back in two weeks. We'll be a little bit more practical or theoretical, I should say. In two theoretical, weeks. probably less practical, <laughs> less practical, more theoretical. We're going to have we're going to have. Uh, Mike and Bethany back talking about the next two dynamics of practice and mature. Um, so we will see you in two weeks. Thank yeah. you everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. Appreciate it.
Thank you for joining us for In the Room with Communitas North America. In the show notes, you will find links to any resources we mentioned during the, our conversation. If you are interested in learning more about connecting and working with Communitas North America in our mission of starting and shaping faith communities that love like Jesus, click on the link for our website in the show notes to learn more and fill out the contact form. We hope you will be joining us again soon.